Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, this is Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. This is our special Thanksgiving 2020 episode, and we have a very special guest tonight, a longtime friend, model maker, author, and cryptozoology enthusiast, Lee Murphy. Hello, Lee. How you doing, Scott? Good. Great to finally have you on the show here. Oh, this is a real pleasure. I've been listening for a while, so it's nice to be on. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm honored to have you on. I'm a great admirer of the work you've done. So you're the one. Yeah. <laughs> so reading your biography, I know that you worked for the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. Yes, sir. Tell us, tell us about that. Well, um, Pretty much my whole life, I've been a dinosaur nerd, and uh, so of course the Natural History Museum was a was always a draw for me. And uh, one time I had gone there back in uh, early 1990, and they were putting together they were uh, starting to put together an exhibit they were going to put out later in the year called Sharks Fact and Fantasy. And of course I'm as crazy about sharks and as I am dinosaurs, so I contacted their uh, Department of uh, Habitats, which is responsible for the model building and such, and I told them I was very interested in being a part of uh, that team if there were if there was a place available, and fortunately there was, and I was able to show them my own sculptural and artwork, so it got me in, and so we did the, uh, we did the exhibit, which, like I said, was titled Sharks, Fact, and Fantasy, and uh, was actually the the uh, biggest exhibit the L.A. Natural History Museum ever had up to that point. And it traveled around the world for the next five years. It was a lot of fun to work on. And, and of course, I stayed with the museum for the next year uh, on the staff, working on other various projects like uh, remodeling their Hall of Birds and things like that. So it was a lot of fun. And uh, some of the best friends I ever had and I'm still very close with, uh, I, I made there working there. Now, the shark exhibit, was this all modern living sharks, or were there some prehistoric sharks in there, too? Uh, it was mostly modern, but they, they did have a section on the history of sharks. They had a life-size megalodon jaw, you know, with the teeth and everything, but in yep. the, you know, where people take their pictures with it and inside the jaw and such. But uh, most everything was actually uh, modern. Uh, we had a uh, 10-foot-long great white shark model. Uh, there was a 15-foot megamouth shark. That was fabricated yeah. there. Mm-hmm. And so and and so it was just uh, really informational and really, really an exciting exhibit. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Did you get to do any marine reptiles? You know, I have not. 
And uh, it is on my my own personal agenda because, uh, again, that to me is just as fascinating as as dinosaurs and, and sharks or anything like that. But uh, to date, I have not. You're currently working on a Demetrodon, right? Actually, the Dimetrodon is finished. It needs a little bit of touch-up work, but I'm uh, focusing on a, another bucket list item, which is a life-size T-Rex. Ooh, yeah, that that ought to be nice. Yeah, it's fun. You know, are I mean, it's just. The, are you doing the whole thing or just the head? Um, you know, right now I'm because I'm, I'm doing it in my garage. It's going to be done in sections. So right now I'm doing the head and neck. And uh, if I decide to do the whole body, then I'll be doing the torso next without the tail and the legs. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how it goes after after I get the head finished. Well, I would imagine you could use the tail to balance the whole thing, to balance the body out against the head. Yeah, Wait. that's right. That's true. Uh, right now, my only limitation is having because I can build the whole thing, but assembling it would be another story. Yeah. And so, but I can have the pieces ready for assembly if, say, uh, a museum or other organization or even a private collector decides they want to purchase it. And then I can have it assembled for them pretty rapidly. Well, now, the Demetrodon you did, is that a commission work, or did you sell that to somebody? or what? No, that's, a, that's another bucket list item, and uh, I would have hoped to have sold it by now, but the uh, funny thing about pandemics, that kind of puts the kibosh on yeah. <laughs> sale efforts, but uh, it'll, it'll be up for sale very soon. Like I said, I got a little bit of touch-up stuff I want to do on it first. Then I'm going to have it photographed uh, professionally, and that's when I'm going to put it on the market. I, I don't think it'll have any problem getting grabbed up. Oh, great. Yeah, it looks impressive. Um, Thank you. I'm very happy with it. And um, so your Cadborosaurus Dayton Harbor model is sitting at the Cryptozoology Museum in Maine, right? Correct. Yeah. Yes, it is. Well, tell us about that. Uh, to tell you the truth, that's one of those things, and and uh, I know that other artists, and um, and you probably understand this too. Every once in a while, we kind of we see something that we get a wild hair about. And for me, I've always based you know because of the photos of the Cadborosaurus body, I was always fascinated by it. Just just I mean, just by the way it looked itself. Yeah. And uh, was always drawn to wanting to do a a sculpture of it. There was really no reason or purpose to do it, and I. And if I kept it, I really wouldn't have had any place to put it. But so um, I had contacted Lauren Coleman and basically offered to donate it to his museum. And he was he was very kindly. He took me up on that. And I and I mean that sincerely because I, I wouldn't have had any place to keep the thing. And and to have a piece in his museum really is something that I'm very proud of. That's that's something that I'm excited about. And um, so I was able to do that and I was able to make the piece, which is what I wanted to do. So. Like I said, it's just kind of the thing that I was like, I want to do this, but how much sense it made at the time, I can't really well, say. great. <laughs> Thank and, you. I, I appreciate that. I tried. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you, how did you get it from L.A. to Maine? Well, it's really not that big. I mean, it's a, it's 11 feet long, but uh, it's cut into three sections. And so I was able to package it up pretty easily. Mm. So it went so, UPS ground or something? I'm sorry? UPS ground? Yeah, UPS. I shipped it that way. Uh, just basically wrapped the pieces in a lot of bubble wrap and, and put yeah. them in a box the right size, and it got there just fine. Well, that's great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, that, that was the main thing behind the pieces. I was just looking to have some fun to build it. Well, you know, the fact is, I mean, the skeptics 
have really tried to poo-poo the whole thing about the Naden Harbor, the carcass. I know. But it still is not completely adequately explained in the skeptical literature. I've heard speculation that it could be a mutilated basking shark, and I've heard speculation that it could be a mutilated white sturgeon. But nobody has managed to really nail it down. So, for all intents and purposes, it remains unexplained. Well, for me, what the best argument for, for it being an authentic unknown is the men who removed it from the, the sperm whale in the first place. These are people that knew what just about everything in the sea was. And to yeah. them, it was so unusual. That alone convinces me that it is an unknown. And as far as like a, a basking shark, I don't think that's possible because if you look at the photos, the thing has a mouth slit, nostrils, yep. and eyes. Exactly. So there is a complete head there. I've, I've seen every mutilated basking shark carcass that has been explained away. I mean, it was initially thought to be a sea monster. Right. In various states of decomposition, and I've never seen one that had a well-formed head with features like that. Exactly. And and it's it's the the animal, the the carcass is largely intact. I mean if you if I mean if you account for the crushing action of being eaten by the sperm whale and then yeah. apparently it wasn't in the belly too long, although I I imagine it had pretty powerful digestive juices working on the carcass. Well yeah, that might be a right there. You know, yeah. and I I'll go we ahead. don't know what a mutilated basking shark digested by uh, juices of a sperm whale's gut looks like. Right, exactly. I would think there'd be some way of doing an experiment to find out. You would think so. I guess, you know, yeah. I mean, I guess they know the acids and things and the strength of the acids that they could yeah. probably, you know, duplicate that in a lab experiment. Well, I have looked into some of the questions surrounding that idea. And apparently, sperm whales will eat carrion. Oh, sure. But, but that doesn't prove anything one way or the other. No. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obviously not a deformed baleen whale. That idea, you can throw that in the garbage. The well, body. Well, also, even in, in the book, the uh, Cadborosaurus by uh, Paul LeBlond, uh, they show a photo of a baleen whale feast. Yeah. No, and they're, they're not identical at all. No. No, there's no resemblance. Um but, you know, at the same time, you know, because we only have the one specimen in the photograph, mm -hmm. we can't rule out the possibility that it is a pathological specimen of something. Right, right. But taking the carcass at face value, it looks like maybe some kind of weird eel or a weird elongated whale like the Salosaurus. Yeah. Possibly. Well, I, I've got my own opinions on that, and I've learned, especially when talking about things like this carcass, I've learned to preface anything I say about it with, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I learned that a I long time. I do that a lot myself. But, um, and, and as you saw, I think you saw in my book, Netaka, I definitely went with the Basilosaurus. Well, yeah. Uh, I, even, I even write down my own arguments, even though the novel is fiction. Yeah. And the narrative, I, I I put my own ideas behind it, you know, and and people can take that for what it's worth. There's at this point, there is no right or wrong, you know. And yeah, that's true. I happen to have agreed with Ed Bousfield, who put forward the idea that 
the Ogopogos are landlocked caddies that swam up the Columbia River and got trapped. You know, I, I, I totally agree that they're the same animal, but I, I tend to lead towards Mackle's theory that they aren't necessarily landlocked. The only reason is if they were landlocked, the gene pool would have collapsed thousands of years ago from inbreeding. Yeah. So so I think they do have access. You know, because Mackle, in his, uh, in his book, uh, he describes a whole series of river networks that go through the Great Lakes and the well, yeah. same animals, I believe, Absolutely. are seen like at Flathead Lake in Montana and, yeah. you know, throughout the area. So I, I personally, my opinion is that, that they're probably still able to get out to the sea and back. Do you know about the Brett's floods? No, that doesn't sound familiar. All right. Where Flathead Lake is yeah. now, at the end of the Ice Age... There was a giant meltwater lake called mm -hmm. Glacial Lake Missoula that was held in by an ice dam, a wall of ice. Mm -hmm. The wall of ice broke, and the resulting flood flooded all the way from Montana to the mouth of the Columbia River. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, so this is all <laughs> documented facts. So what I'm yeah. saying here is, is that it's possible that during back flooding, Something came up the Columbia River and came into places like Flathead Lake, mm -hmm. which is a remnant portion of Lake Missoula, and possibly Lake Okanagan, too. So you've got a potential mechanism to yeah. explain how these creatures could have come up the Columbia River and got that far inland, maybe even in Idaho. And oh, you know, yeah. you've got yeah. a whole series of lakes in that same general region. Yeah, even the Great Lakes have, have a. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So things could have come in from the Columbia River during that time period. And you also had flooding and you had the Champlain Sea. Exactly. And all that stuff going on at the same time. And something could have come up from the uh, Gulf of St. Lawrence as well on the East Coast. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's something else Mackle said, too. Yeah. I'll tell you, uh, as far as like if I was doing research physical research in one of these lakes, I think Flathead Lake would be one of the best possible because of its clarity. Yeah. You know, well, you can see to, hundreds of feet down from the surface. I happen to think that in the continental United States, the case at Flathead Lake is probably the second one after Lake Champlain mm -hmm. for credibility. I mean, you've yeah. got sightings going back to 1889 at Flathead oh, Lake. Yeah. 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 In fact, so I always thought somebody really needs to work on that one. I think so too, because I—I'll tell you the truth. I think Loch Ness is a horrible place to do research. And matter of fact, there are other lakes in Scotland that are clearer water than that, and having the same animals being seen there. But because Loch Ness is so famous, yeah, that's the draw. But it's a horrible place to do research. The water is too murky. Yeah, you know, I—if I, I had the means to search over there, it wouldn't be Loch Ness I'd be looking in. Well, I. I've had a childhood dream of going to Loch Ness, so sure. I really do want to go at some point. But yeah, Marar sounds promising. Yeah, yeah. Among others, yeah, there's apparently several locks over there that, that well, the there's same one, There's one in the Caledonian Canal called Loch Lockie that has a lot of sightings. Yes. And that's right adjacent to Loch Ness. So. Yes, exactly. But I do believe there is something in Loch Ness. Oh, there yeah. Used to, there used to be. I mean, my God, look at the Rhine's evidence. 
Yeah, oh, in without a doubt. And, film. I mean, you can't, you know, that's some of the best evidence we have. And, and you know something, and, and it's also, for me, the, the flipper photos that they keep saying, you know, were, were augmented, they were not augmented. You can, and you even, matter of fact, you yourself even posted the unrefined yeah. original photos, and you can see the flipper detail in there. Absolutely. And they look like plesiosaur flippers. Yeah, yeah, they do. They certainly aren't mammalian. Yeah. Or at least so, no... From known mammals, anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, it is what it is. Some exactly. people find it credible and others don't. So, yeah. until we find and that's, a and specimen, the it's always going to be that way. Yeah, and that's not unreasonable either. I mean, what are you supposed to believe in you don't see evidence of? Yeah. You know? I mean, that's I, I think a healthy skepticism is very important. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I... It's very unpopular these days, but I have an open mind mm -hmm. about the Zuyo Maru carcass not being a basking shark. No, I've seen your posts on that, and and yeah, yeah. it's it's interesting. Which which like the Cadborosaurus carcass uh, again, we'll never know beyond the photos and uh, yeah. speculation. Yeah, but I take a lot of flack for it, and I also am not necessarily convinced of the uh, toy submarine hoax story for the surgeon's photo either. I, I don't know about that one. Yeah, I mean, as far as being a hoax, but to tell you the truth, if it is something authentic, then I don't think it could be a plesiosaur because the angle of the neck is impossible, at least for known species of plesiosaur, I'll say. Well, you know, the way around that is imagine if you, the plesiosaur was hanging vertically in the water with its body up and down. Right. Mm -hmm. And the neck is standing up with the body in that orientation, it wouldn't be a problem. Oh, I agree 100%. In fact, yeah, I'll. We don't I'll, know. We don't know what that is, and we probably never will know what that is. Well, I'll, I'll lay another one on you that you and I discussed before. Um, and this is one I would definitely take a lot of flack for. So let me preface by saying, in my opinion, uh, I still am not totally convinced the Doc Shields photos aren't authentic. I'm sorry. Well, the only, uh, the only evidence in the negative is his wild claims and his reputation. That's the problem. That's what makes I mean, it. That's a big. That's a big stumbling block. Oh, it's a huge stumbling block. That makes it so, totally yeah, worthless you know, evidence. And yet, oddly enough, back in 1977, most people, even even uh, paleo artists, for the most part, were not designing plesiosaurs with a solid muscle neck like the image in those photos, which yeah. is exactly what a plesiosaur would have. Yeah, exactly. They wouldn't have a, a supple, long snake-like neck. They'd have a very strong muscled neck, something like yeah. Schwarzenegger's leg, because they're existing in a very viscous environment, and they have yeah. to be able to move that neck in rapid movements. And well, so there's, there's a lot about the photo that... You know, if he faked it, he sure knew what he was doing as far as anatomically. And well, there's actually, you probably know this, there's two photographs. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one from 1983 that looks just like it. And it's supposed to have been taken by somebody else, but everybody suspects that, oh, that's Doc Shields. He's in the same model again. So. Uh, well, that's the thing I wonder, too. I mean, I, I wanted to question, is uh, he supposed to be the one that made the model? Well, there's a lot of speculation about that. Rowan Watson and myself discussed this. We did an episode about Loch Ness hoaxes. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about what he did. And uh, he supposedly 
made a confession tape for this other guy that lives, I think, in Canada. And Rowan is of the suspicion that this other guy that lives in Canada that recorded the conversation made the model. Okay. But because I'm not it, sure exactly what evidence altogether that Rowan is basing this on. Right. Well, then I, that, I trust Rowan, and he's a yeah, really good researcher. Absolutely, so yeah. Uh, there must be something behind his suspicions. Well, so. if yeah, because if, if I was going to say, if Doc Shields had made the model, then uh, the issue I have with that is when you're that good an artist, you don't make just that one piece in your lifetime. Yeah. You're going to have lots of other stuff you've done. You're not that good. Well, he faked, allegedly faked pictures at, uh, of the Morgauer mm-hmm. at um, Cornwall in 1976. And there's another one he's alleged to have faked at a lake in Ireland. I can't remember what yeah. lake it is. but Yeah. Well, def- his reputation definitely kills anything as, as yeah. possible evidence of anything. I mean, I was just always impressed with the anatomy in that photo. Well, they, you know, they, there's always the possibility. There's always the possibility that he was doing his bullshit, uh-huh. <laughs> and Nessie happened to come up and look to see what the hell was going on. And right, and of course looking. that's that's the rest of our luck is that he's but, the one that comes out with it, and it's worthless. <laughs> you, you try to sell that to some skeptic, they're going to say, "Oh my God, man, that's the worst." awful special pleading I've ever heard. Yeah. Of course, so, there's been similar talk about Roger Patterson and, and yeah. his film. Yeah, so I'm actually he, reading... He's uh, a con man who just happened to film Bigfoot, right? I'm actually reading Greg Long's book right now, the, the, the indictment of Roger Patterson. Right, yeah. Just out of my own curiosity to see what the case against him is. Well, you know about the... Uh, do you know about the toes on the film? The toes, no. Uh, okay, now this is something I saw for myself. And so this is absolutely true. And this was around, I, th- I th- as I recall, I think it was the 2005 Texas Bigfoot Conference. I'm not 100% sure about the year, but I think it was 2005. And Dr. Jeff Meldrum was there doing a presentation. Yeah. And what he put up, and it was on a big screen in front of everybody, he did a blow up of the right foot of the uh, creature in that film. And because it's film and not video, when they enlarged it using uh, equipment designed by NASA, which of course did not exist in Roger Patterson's time, Mm -hmm. they blew it up. And because it's not video, it does not pixelate. So he had a very clear picture of the right foot enlarged on this screen. Mm. And he had something like five frames of the right foot walking. So it's flat on the ground, it goes up, and then as the foot is about to step back down on the ground, the toes splay off the front independently of the foot, looking like five long fingers. Wow, that's cool. Nobody faked that. And if Roger Patterson faked a detail like that, you better believe he'd have been on the rooftops announcing, well, what about this? Look at this. Look at the toes. He didn't even know it existed because you can't see it with the naked eye on the film. Well, I'm just, you know... I'm just reading the, the the case that the other side is arguing. I'm not saying right. I agree with it. Oh, no, I, I understand. But I'm just saying well, for me, that's, yeah. that, that's a dead bang win that the film is 100%. Well, I, I'm inclined to think it's authentic, too. Um, yeah. You know, Meldrum's studies are very impressive. Yes, absolutely. 
But then you've got another anthropologist named David Dangling that claims that all of what Meldrum is saying is not accurate. So, you know, you've got the opinions of more than one person. Always, yeah. 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 So yeah. I'm just trying to be, you know, I try, I'm, I'm trying to take the same approach with this as I did with my lake monsters. Well, of course, yeah. yeah that's it, yeah. I, you know, and I certainly understand that. I think that's necessary. Yeah. But like I said, once once I saw those toes, there nobody faked that. Well, no, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's it's good to be well rounded and be familiar with all the different opinions. Yes. Of everybody, I'm also at the same time about to start reading Haskell Hart's uh, critique of the Melba Ketchum DNA study, which mm, also gets interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that's very controversial too, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember when it came out. <laughs> yeah. My current opinion on the Bigfoot DNA is that we know that chimpanzee DNA is 99% similar to humans. Correct. So perhaps some of the um, ones that Sykes studied that came back human may be so close to being human, but are Sasquatch. I mean, I don't yeah. know. It's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be impossible to know until one is found. Exactly. And, and just yeah. brought out, and, and then we'll know everything. You know, there's supposed to be a refereed paper coming out about the environmental DNA survey that was done in Loch Ness. Mm -hmm. And we're all waiting with baitless breath for that. But I don't know when it's coming out. It's probably got delayed by this pandemic thing. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Or maybe they're having trouble getting past the referees. I don't know. Yeah. It should be interesting to hear what, what comes Well, yeah. Up. You know, it's nice to look at what they posted online. And watch the press conferences and the documentaries, but that's not the hard science. We're not going to get the hard science behind it until that paper is published. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm waiting. You know, I'm waiting for that to look at this 25 to 20 percent unknown DNA and say, well, is this just garbage DNA that's contaminated, or is this something unknown? Right. Yeah. So I don't know. You know. Yeah, that's going to be nice to hear that when it comes out. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, tell us about Kodiak and your book series. <laughs> well, uh, basically, it's a he's a cryptozoologist. Uh, each book, it's their episodic stories. So the first one, where legends roam, is of course with the Sasquatch. Uh, so far, there are five books I've got published in the series. Uh, the original inspiration being, uh, like, uh, like with the X-Files was, uh, the Night Stalker. Oh, yes. Uh, I love the Night Stalker. Oh, God. So did I. Every Friday night, my friends, I would just Absolutely. be Absolutely. I got the whole run of it on, on video. Yeah, I do, too. Two movies <laughs> and the entire show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they were brilliant. And, uh, so that was kind of the impetus behind it to have, like, a singular character. That way I could do stories on all the, the cryptids I found interesting. And yeah. then have, you know, and then have kind of that continual link through, through all of them. Yeah. And, uh, and so, um, so far it's been a lot of fun to write because I, I try to go in. The thing I like to write is, is to try to create a feeling of, uh, of actually encountering the animal. Um, and the thing of it is with fiction, you can have, I think you have to have like a specific 
animal in mind as the as the candidate because to make a satisfying story. Whereas with nonfiction, it would be very irresponsible to say Bigfoot is Gigantopithecus. Yeah. But in the sense of fiction, you know, you I I hopefully create the feeling of coming away with having seen the animal, encountering it yourself, coming away with feeling like, wow, I I went on a Bigfoot thing and and saw it and know what it would be like to to be faced with one in life and you know what i mean it's it's just kind of fulfilling that fantasy of what would you do in that situation what would you want to see an encounter and have happen in that situation and so and in a novel form it makes it very possible and a lot of fun and so he's you know so i've covered so far five books and there's probably going to be five more in in by the time i'm done i anticipate that anyway how much of yourself have you put into the character of Kodiak? <laughs> well, I, I, I guess with uh, with any character an author creates, I mean, you're gonna they're gonna share your point of view on a lot of things, so there's similarities that way. But uh, you know, in a, in a case like this character, he's really pure fantasy. I mean, he's he's somebody who's basically he has qualities that I might aspire to, but are not really humanly possible. Uh, He's, you know, absolutely fearless and things like that. Things that, you know, I I really can't give myself any attributes towards, except having the same interests as he does. And and obviously any knowledge he has is knowledge that I've acquired or or implied in, in the story. Yeah. Well, here's a question. Mm-hmm. In the character in the, the books, have you written about a cryptid that you thought would be interesting for the books? But that in in private, you you don't really take much stock in. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, um, and I, I hate saying this because some there have been some people that were kind of disappointed by my answers. But uh, the truth is, I look at the subject from two different perspectives. If we're if we're talking about what I think is real and and the research of the field itself, I'm actually much more skeptical than what I would apply to my books. Uh, whereas in the books, I'll see something that you know, that I can make something with the story and make it seem plausible, but I don't, I might not necessarily see it that way. Now see Bigfoot. And and as we were just talking about the Patterson film, I, I personally am very convinced it's a real animal. Oh, I am too. Yeah. So that one, yes. Uh, for Nataka, absolutely. Uh, again, and I'm going to throw my hat in, in the Bacillosaurus ring, uh, Loch Ness, um, again, I'm with you on that. I do believe something has been there and there's strong evidence indicating that as far as plesiosaurs, um, I think the morphology is the thing on that. Um, especially when you look at the Mansi photo, that's not a bacillosaurus by any means. Um, so morphology does lend. And in the case of, like I said, in the case of fiction, to me, that makes a good argument for plesiosaurs. Um, in reality, we don't know. Uh, as far as far as, uh, as as far as like kind of whole cloth creatures um, in heretofore unknown, I use the Honey Island Swamp Monster, which if I were writing nonfiction on that, I would believe that it is probably another splinter group of Sasquatch. But because I dealt with Sasquatch in the first book, I made I made this something basically totally out of my own mind. And uh, the Chupacabras. Even though I really am happy with that book, and I think it's a, a fun book, and the and the uh, solution to it and everything, I, I was really happy with. I I don't believe there's any reality to the the chupacabras, and 
In fact, when I first perceived the series, I had no intention of including the Chupacabras. And then a few years later, I was at work and all these ideas started hitting me for it. And next thing I know, yep, he's in the series. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic, too. I'm also highly skeptical of Dogman. Yeah, that's not well, one that's really... If there's some good evidence, I will have an open mind, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, that, that, to me, that kind of falls into the category of... Uh, you know, when which I see one of the problems with the whole cryptozoology field is there's a lot of sensationalism. Yeah, that 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 to me really kind of mars the subject and, and makes me very skeptical of a lot of things. There are people <clears throat> that are making up stories out of whole cloth. Yeah. And posting these videos on YouTube. You know, mm-hmm. for, yeah subscriptions and web hits and all that kind of stuff and they're yeah. exploiting it yeah yeah which is sad you know it, it is i'm also kind of skeptical of a of a sasquatch habituation stories too i mean i'm not saying it doesn't happen and you know it, it possibly does but my skepticism comes from a lot of people making these claims but then they don't want to tell you or show you anything oh they they're protecting the animals trust, you know and noel because if, if I was in a habituation situation that I did not want to risk exposing them to outside influence, and I personally, I just wouldn't tell anybody about it then. Exactly. Well, the whole habituation thing seems to have started with this woman in Tennessee. Right. Yeah. I and apparently, <laughs> she has mental problems. Yeah. And it's made up out of her head, is my understanding. Yeah. Mm hmm. So, which is unfortunate. I'm sorry. It is. That's, it is very unfortunate. But it seems like a bunch of people have jumped on her bandwagon yeah. and have ran with the idea. So, I don't know. I yeah. Mean, I've, I've also seen other people making claims of habituation situations, but they, they provide nothing in the way of evidence. You know, well, it's convenient. You know, if you don't have to provide evidence or Bigfoot steps away in a portal, then, then the burden of evidence is gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's I, as far as I'm concerned, I stick with what Meldrum is saying. He makes sense. Yeah, him and and, uh, Robert Krantz. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, Bindernagel. You know, I'm. Oh, he was amazing. Bigfoot is real. It's a flesh and blood creature. It's some kind of relic hominoid, maybe a bipedal Gigantopithecus or. Paranthropus Boisei or something along those lines that probably came across the land bridge from Asia. Sure. So, I don't know. Well, we, we know the red panda did at some point when they found yeah. fossilized bones of that in Tennessee. Yeah. Well, there's all kinds of animals that cross back and forth across sure. the land bridge. Of course, yeah. There were animals that came from North America and went into Asia. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I'm just... happened in North and South America. Yeah. I would just like to... At a, a small side note here is uh, I, I got to know Dr. Brindernagel and his wife, and they were just uh, the most wonderful people, just uh, the kindest people you could ever meet. And yeah. uh, I really enjoyed getting to see him at conferences and stuff. And Yeah. Well, I don't know if you've heard about this, but lately John Kirk has been doing some serious investigation into the Albert Osman story. I have seen some of that. That's and awesome. seems to be coming up with the conclusion that Osman's story doesn't add up. Well, that's possible, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, I always took it to be authentic, but I don't know. You know, if, if John's coming up with the evidence that it's not, then and, you, and know, the thing of, you have to you have to take that into consideration. Yeah, yeah. And, and I trust John. He's another person. Oh, me too. He's, so he's, he's, so he's, an, he's a wonderful person. And, and uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't very down to earth. But that's, you know, that's a difference of opinions. But Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but yeah, he's a great researcher, and I highly yeah, he is, and a really nice guy, too. And it's nice to see somebody going back and looking into these old stories and coming up with new data about them. Well, you know, yeah, because it's it's relevant. It's very yes, relevant. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> beyond the T-Rex, what are some of your other model projects you're working on? Well, right right now, that's that's the current one, which is somewhat unwieldy but it's 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 getting there um i've done a few a lot of these can be seen on and that all of them can be seen on my my facebook page the first really big thing i built that i was happy with was a uh life-size great white shark's head uh which i did just after i left the museum and uh so i sculpted and built that in fiberglass and uh, it was a head mount of what would have been an 18 foot great white and I'd like to do another great white, either uh, another head mount the size of the shark in Jaws, but uh, or maybe a full body, but maybe not not as big, you know. But um, I haven't decided on that yet. Have and, you uh, have you done any model work for special effects for the movies? I did for a couple years, but it's it wasn't an environment I really cared for, especially now that with CGI, that whole field is shrinking dramatically. Yeah. And uh, it's it's been one of my best friends, uh, Don Lanning, has been in that business for 30 years. And uh, he's commented to me that it's been getting tough, you know, for a lot yeah. of people with the market right now, especially with uh, the COVID thing. That's put everything. So, so my interest is more museum type pieces, personally. Yeah. By any chance, did you ever meet Ray Harryhausen? I did once it was a, and it was actually kind of a surprise because we have a thing out here called the Festival of Books, which is a uh, two day weekend uh, thing they do out here at uh, UCLA on the campus there. And it's just uh, publishers and, and bookstores, and everything convened on the campus for for a big show. And uh, I, the last time I was there. Uh, it turned out Ray Harryhausen was there and he was autographing his book, which I got a copy of the the big one that he had. And uh, I'm looking for it on my shelf right now, but it's buried among a billion other books. So, but uh, yeah. anyway, he was there. And uh, so I stood in line and got, he autographed it. He was, he was very nice, but I didn't really get a chance to say much to him because you know how like a lot of times they have somebody there with them. That's, that's opening the book and giving it that to them to sign. Yeah. Well, the guy he had with him was chatting him up, so it kind of excluded anybody from really saying anything to well, that's uh, Mr. Harryhausen. Yeah, it wasn't. Well, the reason the reason I asked the question is that a lot of people don't know that after he stopped doing stop motion, he went around and helped museum museums with the robotic dinosaurs. Oh, I had no idea. Modeling, yeah. So I thought you might have run across him. No, no. Capacity. No, not at all. Unfortunately, I would have loved it. Yeah, 
But yeah, his of course, you know, as as you're well aware and everybody listening is well aware. I mean, uh, the man was just an incredible genius. Oh my god, one of my heroes. I'm still in awe of the uh, to me in Clash of the Titans, the Medusa sequence was oh. was terrifying. I Especially they got her armed with a bow and arrow too on top of yeah. it. <laughs> I saw all the Sinbad movies. Oh yeah. In the theater, you know. Right. Uh huh. Yeah, I remember. I think that's the first time I encountered his work was was uh, the Sinbad movies in the theater. Yeah, um, I was lucky enough to get to see Valley of Guanche in the theater. I would have loved that. I didn't see that. Sorry, I had to let the dog out of the room. But uh, I would have loved to have seen that on the big screen. I did catch it on television a few years later, and of course, it's it's well, great. I loved I loved the uh, homage to uh, the King Kong Rex when Gawanji first shows up and he scratches his nose. Yeah, well, <laughs> that was it, awesome. Believe it or not, I saw it nineteen eighty nine at a dinosaur film festival in Philadelphia. Oh, nice! So it was a miracle I got to see it. But I did see it on a big screen. So. That is awesome. You know, the last movie I saw at a theater just before the uh, pandemic shut everything down was uh, the original King Kong on the big screen. Well, I saw that. It was re-released in 1975 with the missing footage restored. Ooh, that must have been so great. Well, this one had the missing footage, too. So, yeah. I was 11 years old when this happened. How cool is that? Yeah. I had to wait till I was 57. <laughs> I imagine we're probably about the same age. I'm I'm going to be 57 in December. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. you you were you were get, got to see all the cool stuff too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I grew yeah. up on 70s Hammer movies, Planet yeah. of the Apes, Godzilla, all that stuff. You know, it's funny because I'll tell people Planet of the Apes was our Star Wars because yeah. that all the cool merchandising and everything attached to it, and the and of course the movies are awesome. All that stuff, yeah. But I remember um, the original Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston was actually kind of a terrifying film. Yeah. When the gorillas first showed up and were attacking the humans, that when I was a kid, that scared me to death. Yeah. Well, oh, uh, God, where was that going with this? <laughs> well, we were talking I'll about... I'm trying to thought here. Hang on a second. Sure. Okay, um... Tell us about how you got into cryptozoology. Well, to begin to with. Okay. Well, I'll tell you the truth. It probably, I, I think, I'm sure it's just an offshoot of uh, my dinosaur obsession as a kid. Uh, because you start hearing stories about, I, I remember being real young and hearing about the Loch Ness Monster. And my parents would say, and they were kind of just talking kind of like what everybody heard. They never really had an interest in it or anything. But they said, oh, yeah, there's supposed to be a, a dinosaur living in this lake, you know, in the in Loch Ness, right? And, yeah, and I was yeah. like, wow, really? Well, why aren't we going there and seeing it? You know, and of course, having no clue what the real situation was or that Scotland yeah. is not something you just drop everything and go to visit on yeah. a weekend. Um, so that kind of got the ball rolling for me. And But even before I knew of the Patterson film, I think the it was The Legend of Boggy Creek. That uh, got me. I got my parents to take me to go see it at the drive-in when it came out, and uh, like I guess just about most other people in that field, that's that's what got me first, and and it kind of grew from there. The idea that you know there were these back then, the perspective was monsters. You know, I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. I, you know, to me, it's it. My view on it now is very different from when it was. Then it was like, wow, you mean monsters can be real? And 
you do know, you remember the National Geographic special about cryptozoology with Rod Serling? Oh yeah, yeah. Rod Serling I was here in the headlights. That hit me like a brick. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what put the the hook in me was that TV special. Well, you know, Rod Serling was was my hero back when I was a kid. And it's funny because back then it was only because the Twilight Zone and monsters. So, of course, as far as I was concerned, he was great. And, of course, now I look back on what he was really about and I'm, I'm, I'm really floored by his genius. And it's yeah. really about monsters and such. But just even his daughter will post quotes from him on Facebook nowadays. And it's, it's like he's still here commenting yeah. things that are very profound today. Yeah, he was from some little town in upstate New York. Right, right, yeah. yeah. And uh, if you, do you ever read his daughter's uh, biography of him? No, I should I should check that out. And I knew him, my father, Rod Serling, by by uh, Ann Serling, and it is it. First of all, she's she definitely inherited her, her uh, father's writing skills, well, and right. uh, it just uh, and as I read it, it's it's fascinating because I felt like I'd missed like I'd like a true friend had passed away, even though I never knew the man. And yet I came away from that book feeling like someone beloved in my life had was gone. Yeah. And cause that's just the way that she presented it. And, and it's a great book. It's beautiful. Well, he, you know, he talked about some very important social issues yes. in his twilight zone stories, you know, that he was yeah. using fiction to comment on things that were important exactly. in society. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the only way he could do it. That the sponsors yeah. weren't gonna gut everything he wrote, you know. And yeah, yeah, fascinating man, just an incredible. Oh, absolutely, I couldn't agree more. One, yeah, one of the best geniuses of, of our time. Yeah, I can I can even tell you exactly where I was the day that he passed away. Was uh, we were in Long Beach visiting some family friends, and we'd been out uh, on their sailboat all day. And yeah. so after that, we went back to their house. And as my mom and her friend, who she grew up with, that's why they were family friends, they were preparing dinner. We were all hanging out in the living room. I was 12 years old at the time. We were hanging out in the living room, and it came on the news that he had passed away. Yeah, it was sad. Oh, terrible. I love Night Gallery, too. Oh, yeah. Night Gallery was a kick. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I remember all that stuff. I watched Cold Shack the night it premiered. Oh yeah, that was that, that was greatness. Yeah, and yeah. I also saw the original vampire movie the night it aired. Oh, the uh, the Night Stalker, the original, yeah, Night the Stalker. first movie. I was right. blown away by it. <laughs> I've and got oils too. I've got a funny story. Was uh, when the uh, Night Stalker TV show was on, a friend of mine had come over, and we were watching. We were in what is now my den. We had a TV in there. And we were watching the Night Stalker, and it was the episode with the female vampire who had been a victim of uh, right. Scorsese, yeah. the movie. Yeah. And so this the the show opens up, and she's at this party with all these football players, and she's making out with this dude, and the camera's on her, so you're seeing the back of the guy's head, and he's on top of her, and they're kissing and going crazy. All of a sudden, she opens her mouth and eyes, and there's those vampire fangs. This guy ran out of the room and across the street to home as fast as he could. <laughs> You know the movie that scared me to death when I was a kid? What's that? Race with the Devil. Ooh, that was a good one. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. Actually, yeah. prob probably Absolutely. the one the one that got me, I was about eight years old at the time. 
And my mom went to visit some neighbors across the street. So I went over with her and they were watching something on TV and nobody was really paying attention to it. And I didn't know what it was they were watching. And so uh, they all went into the kitchen for coffee or whatever. And I stayed in the room watching the TV. I didn't know that it was an episode of The Outer Limits. And this is one I'd never seen before. And so in the scene, this guy is talking to these other people and he's got these dark goggles on his face. He takes the goggles off and he's got these big freaking bug eyes. Ah. And God, I ran out of there so fast. I <laughs> and that, that character, it was an episode called The Mutant with Warren Oates. And that was another great show. It, the Outer Limits rocked. But uh, yeah. that one that one scared the crap out of me. And yeah. uh, had nightmares about him for years. But it was well, a good episode. Good show. Another thing that really put the hook in me for cryptozoology was a double whammy of the Rhines, underwater pictures from 1975, mm -hmm. and Jaws. Oh, of course. Around the same time. I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Now, now you're talking about my all-time favorite movie, too. So. Oh, I, one of my favorites, too. I love oh, it. Yeah. 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 It just gets better every time I see it. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's and miserable to watch the sequels. Oh, because what, so there were no sequels for Jaws. What are you talking about? You know? Yeah, but I mean that. It's yeah, no that contest. original film. And if you if you read and about the making of it and the backstories of it, it's amazing. Yep. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah, I think they could make a movie about that alone. Oh yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, the book is so much different from the movie. You know, I never liked the book. You know, it's very, the characters, and Spielberg said the same thing himself. He, he, matter of fact, I think he described it as when he read it, it was a book about a shark eating human garbage. And he yeah, just, well, you know, the in, the book, in the book, Hooper and um, Brody hate each other, and right. Hooper has an affair right. with Mrs. Brody. Right. And so it's the funny character dynamics are all screwed up. It is, but but what a lot of people don't realize, I'm, mostly people that didn't read the book, is when they hear that Hooper had, a, had an affair with uh, Brody's wife, they get the idea that it's Richard Dreyfus, and it's like, no, in the book, he was not anything like Richard Dreyfus's character. He was a tall, good-looking, rich boy. Yeah, you know, and he was he was not pleasant. You know, very no. arrogant, and and so. Get rid of the idea of Richard Dreyfus climbing all yeah. over. That wasn't, <laughs> wasn't the way it was. Yeah. No, I like the book, but it's a lot different from the movie. The movie is superior, I agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, the opposite situation is with uh, Beast. The book is so much better than the TV miniseries. You know, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And yet the TV miniseries, it looked like they were doing a lot of derivative off of Jaws. Yeah. The book, you're right. The book was very different. I, Somebody I needs loved. to go back and do a more, a, a big screen version of Beast closer to the book. Well, you know, I, I loved the ending of the book where the sperm whale shows up. Yeah. And comes after that. I thought that was brilliant. But yeah, I mean, that's all, that book is almost as good as Jaws. Yeah, it's it's definitely way better than the movie. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, I, actually, I think... For me personally, Benchley's best book is The Deep. Did you ever read that? I've never read the book. I love the movie. The movie's very good, and the book is very good. I should read it. Yeah, there there are differences, but not not really in a negative way either way. You know, they're both still really good, but I, I yeah. think that's his best book. Yeah, well, he wrote some great stuff. You know? Yeah, he did. He did. He definitely earned his place in history. 
Well, his father and grandfather were writers too. Right, exactly. Nathaniel Benchley and and uh, Robert Benchley. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, tell me about your Frankenstein-inspired books. I'm interested in what's behind <laughs> that. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I'm not a Frankenstein guy. I mean, it's well, not. I am. You know, I mean, I I love. My favorites are, are Boris Karloff's Frankenstein, the first one, and Frankenstein, the true story. Oh, I, I love that one, too. That absolutely is like the second favorite version. Yeah, the, the true story, even though it's really not anything like the book, is a great film. Oh, absolutely. I, I saw it on TV when it was on. Yeah, I did, too. I mean, 73 or 74. Right. And, and for, years, for years before they released it on the DVD, I've, I've been trying to capture it on video. And yeah. circumstances always prevented me from getting it every time they would show it. And yeah. I got the DVDs now, but uh, yep. God, David McCallum was was just awesome. And <laughs> oh, absolutely! I mean, just the entire cast was stellar. You know? Yeah, yeah. And and I love my uh, favorite version of Frankenstein is the De Niro one. You like that one? I love it. Yeah, the, to me, that's the most faithful. Yeah, yeah. I think it's you're right. Different in some places, but. but you know, it, I, I it think really it captures the guts of the story. You know something, though? I think, and I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, it's kind of an unpopular opinion where the book is concerned. Um, I think the reason there are so many different versions of Frankenstein is because, to tell you the truth, not a lot happens in the book. Well, there I are mean, lots of lots of dead spots in the book. Yeah, and it's like there's not even a female creature in the book. He starts. Well, I do. To build one. I do like the book, though. I mean, it's kind of creaky in places, but yeah, I like yeah. the original book. But I see, you know, but I see from it after I read it because I'd, I'd read it shortly before I wrote Igor, just to make sure I didn't, you know, go into t any pre territory that was already there. But, but um, yeah, I just kind of left thinking, huh? I could see why the movies have had to do what they did, you know, because there's just a lot of space to fill that's not in the book. Yeah. Uh, like well, I said, there's your, not a female creature in the book. Is your Igor like the Fritz in the original Universal movie, or is it like the Boris Bela Lugosi uh, Igor, the son of Frankenstein? Uh, neither. He's actually a uh, the the whole story is actually an original, completely original creation. Um, it's his story, and he's telling it first person. But overall. Um, he is a kind of a bumbler, but in other ways, he's very intelligent, but doesn't know it. Uh, he's more, in some ways, he's more of a Quasimodo. Ah. Because uh, in some ways, he's actually very heroic. And, um, but he's the kind of character, like, in because he was born deformed, and uh, in his, he was orphaned and raised by the local abbot in his village, in the orphanage there. But he'd been pretty much shunned all his life by everybody because of his deformities and kind of hated and so when uh, the story starts, the, the abbot who raised him, who's very old now, uh, comes to him and tells him that there is a castle the church owns up in the, in the mountains, like a, a three-week trek into the mountains that a doctor from another country has purchased. And, and uh, the abbot wants Igor to go up there and make it ready for him because it's a ruin. And that's how he and the doctor get together. And uh, so it's just kind of, him telling his own story and his experiences with the doctor, but the story is actually very, very different from any Frankenstein story told. In fact, the name Frankenstein is never mentioned in it because, mm -hmm. because Igor is telling the story in the narrative. He either said, describes him as the doctor or when he's talking to him, he just calls him doctor. And well, so the doctor, 
an unsympathetic character? Yes and no. Igor. Well, he's he's uh, abusive and and bipolar, uh, alcoholic. I always pictured because he's older in my book. He's an older man, and uh, I described him as uh, just being a, a former Hessian. Uh, and he's worked all his life towards this project. And so, of course, there's ups and downs and and blinding rages. And, you know, he abuses Igor terribly. And Igor is the kind of character that if it's if the if the abuse and he's taken abuse all his life, if it's aimed at him, he takes it and he takes it and he takes it. But in defense of somebody else that he sees being mistreated or a, or a mis- an injustice being done to them. Uh, he flips out in the worst way possible, and anybody that he's going after is is going to remember it if they. So survive. his character has emotional scars from his abusive life. Right, right. That figures into his character. Exactly. Yes, I got you. And so, and so he's he's uh, basically telling the story of his four years with this doctor, and how their friendship develops, and how you know the doctor sometimes treats him horribly. And then other times the doctor is singing his praises because he's, because Igor actually has a certain genius of his own where engineering and construction are concerned. So he's actually able to participate in uh, helping the project along. And uh, so it's kind of, that's what the story is. And there's, there's definite horror elements to it. So, I mean, it's not a soft story at all it's it's got a lot of darkness to it although i I guess it wouldn't qualify as a strictly horror story as much as a character piece well tell us about your other frankenstein book (laughs) that one sounds really interesting are you talking about redneck frankenstein yes (laughs) to tell you the truth that one it's completely unrelated to igor um that one came to me in a dream and uh, what it was is in the dream, it was actually kind of a scary dream. And I thought it was going to make a great horror story. Uh, basically, in the dream, this guy, um, it took place in the in the deep south. And he had this, uh, like with what you see with moonshiners and the, the revenuers coming after him. Yeah. In, in, in the dream, he had this guy captive who was a revenuer. And he was going to be doing his horrible experiments on him. So I woke up the next morning and I'm like, wow, that, that could be a story. But the title came to me immediately. And it's like, you know, a title like Redneck Frankenstein ain't going to actually sound all that scary. Then as I was writing and developing it, it just turned into an all out comedy. And so it's, it's, a, it's a comedy. And basically the idea is that uh, the character's name is Luther Call. So it's Frankenstein only appears in the title because there's really no relationship to the Frankenstein story, except Luther's a smart feller and he knows how to bring dead people back to life. Sounds like fodder for a great B movie. You know, I I would love to see Michael Rooker play him because (laughs) I think he would be great. You should do a screenplay. Oh, I've already got one written for it. Oh, okay. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) From your lips to God's ear. But, you know, so the whole thing is just... uh, laugh out loud comedy because even though he's he's a a genius as far as like being able figuring out a way to bring dead people back to life uh he's still a hillbilly redneck that enjoys 12 year old uh mentality humor and things like that in fact to give it i'll give you a, a a sample of what the the humor is like in the story luther and his buddy tim who is kind of his igor uh get arrested for what they've been doing because it gets out that what's been happening here. 
And so the the prosecution is trying to build a case against him. They're doing an early investigation, trying to, you know, figure out what they can even charge him with because they're not sure he actually did anything illegal. And so one of the people they go to see, because at this at this point, the story's gotten out all over the world. So everybody knows this guy in the South has figured out how to resurrect dead people. And so they go, it turns out Luther went to medical school at Johns Hopkins University. And so the dean of medicine there absolutely hated him, hated everything about him. And so uh, when the prosecution's investigator goes to Johns Hopkins to uh, meet with the dean of medicine, he asks him what he thought of Luther when he was there. And the dean says to him, to tell you the truth, when he left the university, I would assumed it was to pursue his passion for igniting farts and sexually harassing women. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the whole story has kind of got that humor running throughout. Yeah. But well, uh, it was a lot of fun to write, and, and, and people seem to like it. You know, I mean, I, I guess you have to have a certain taste for that kind of humor, but it's, uh, you well, know, it was fun. I'm sure I'll get around to reading it at some I point. I hope you do. I'd like to, I'd like to hear what oh, you absolutely, think. absolutely, yeah. But like I said, the whole thing I is just done for laughs. I love the two, uh, the, the Loch Ness book and the uh, Ogopoga one. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so have you done any real cryptozoology field work? Not like I would want to. Most of the research I've done has been for the books. Um, I went up to the Olympic Peninsula uh for the first book to research, mostly to research the area, because by the time I get there, I pretty much know based on, you know, cause I have a library here of, of all, all sorts of books written on each of the phenomenon. Yeah. And uh, so by then I pretty much have an idea of which animal I'm going to use, but I like to go to make the, the place as, um, as authentic as possible. And uh, Just to feel like what it's really like to be there. Right. Yeah. And to get the facts right, too. You know, uh, yeah. so, so I went to uh, Lake Okanagan, which is one of my favorite trips ever. It's so beautiful up there. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing place. Uh, I know you probably already know this kind of thing. But when we when we got there, we arrived in Kelowna uh, late at night. So we got from the airport, took a cab to our hotel, which is like a block from the lake. And so we couldn't see the lake, but we got out of the cab and we were immediately hit by this overpowering smell of fresh water yep. in the air. And it was like, wow, you know, there was a monstrous body of water out there right nearby. And, and yeah. it was amazing. Well, you know, even though I don't live in Vermont anymore, mm -hmm. I still miss being around Lake Champlain all the oh, time. Sure. I yeah. mean, it's a beautiful place, even if you don't think there's a monster in there. The mountains and the water is just gorgeous. Oh, God, yeah. Just based on the, the photos and footage I've seen, it looks like yeah. an amazing place. So, I love the place. You know, I go back as much as I can afford to, you know? Uh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, so, what writing projects are you working on now? Well, I, I like to... I like to separate the, the uh, Kodiak cryptozoology novels apart. You know, I don't like to write one right after the other because it also allows me time to, to think more, more deeply on the particular subjects before I really tackle them. And so right now, so Igor and Redneck Frankenstein were two stories separate from that. And I wrote one that I, that I really like a lot. It's more of a novella than a full novel, but it's called Psychic Shower. 
and it's a science fiction story about a uh, what what it is is a uh, piece of wreckage from the Roswell crash mm-hmm. uh, is the device that uh, it's believed that aliens use to put people in a trance for the alien abduction situation. Now, let me stress up front, in the book, there are no aliens, and you don't see spaceships or things like that. But what has happened is the government has this piece of equipment, and they know if they could figure out how to use it, it would make a great weapon. Because what happens is when it's activated, everything within a 15-mile radius just goes unconscious. Uh, and But the problem is nobody can get inside the zone to do anything, because anybody then enters the zone also collapses. And so they're doing an experiment where they turn the thing on for a 24-hour period in this uh, coastal beach town in California. And they're using robots to go in and do the experiments on on the people that are there because they're trying to figure out what they can based on their research to ultimately make it either create suits or something that will allow – uh, military forces to enter into an area where that's turned on without collapsing as well. Mm-hmm. And, but the problem is once everybody and all the animals and people and everybody go unconscious, there are two people that are affected differently. One is a woman who at the beginning of the story was in a uh, automobile accident and is basically brain dead. She's on life support, but they know it's only a matter of time before she's going to die. And the other is a young man who's lived in the town all his life. Who's uh, mentally handicapped can't speak, uh, can't look people in the eye, that kind of thing. But he's still very functional. Yeah. And when this thing goes off, she comes back to life, and he's uh, basically like the average person. Huh. He's got normal capabilities. And the two of them are being hunted by these machines uh, to find out why they're able to do this when nobody else is able to do it. And so they're kind of on the run from this, trying to figure out what's going on while everyone around them and all the animals are collapsed unconscious everywhere and uh it was a fun story i I really like it a lot it worked out really well i I think it's very suspenseful and and some clever ideas you put in there yeah i mean i it it, it's fun it it turned out really well and uh so i'm working on one right now that'll probably be out early next year and it's a werewolf story wow and i can't go too much into that unfortunately because it's the kind of thing that it's a public domain idea and so if I tell too much about it, somebody else could say, hey, I can do that. So I'm kind of yeah. keeping that one on the down low till it's ready to go out. Oh, I totally understand that. Have you thought about reading, writing a straight nonfiction cryptozoology book? I'll tell you the truth. Not so much cryptozoology, unless it was something that I felt I could add to the subject. I mean, it's like, for instance, say Bigfoot. There are so many better books than I could write on it from so many people or even the lake monsters, the people that are that are doing the physical research very much like yourself, you know, and I don't think I really have much to offer that way. Although I, I really want to write a nonfiction book on Dimetrodon ah. uh, because all the information available on Dimetrodon is usually sporadic and a few dinosaur books or well, you know, online. I'd like to do like a whole clearinghouse book on everything known about. It's really weird, the whole situation. With the therapsids now. They used to be called mammal-like reptiles. Right. Mm-hmm. And now that's being frowned upon. They're saying, oh, no, they're not reptiles. Synapses are something else. Right, yeah. So there's that whole argument going exactly, on. Exactly, yeah. And, when you look uh, at something like Demetrodon Redaposaurus, 
and it doesn't look mammalian. It looks like a reptile. Exactly. Yeah, and, and so, you, know, you know it's a slippery slope there. You know. Exactly. Exactly. But it's very interesting at the same time. You know. Oh yeah, I mean, it was one of my Dimetrodon's been one of my favorite animals as long as T Rex. Well, I've, I've always been fascinated by the uh, Cynodons. Yeah. Because absolutely. there you've got animals that are like, is it a Komodo dragon or a dog? <laughs> exactly. Kind of half and half, you know? And then yeah. you've got the Gorgonopsians, which were like reptilian saber tooths. Exactly. Know? Exactly. I mean, you couldn't make something like this up, you know? <laughs> I know. And uh, yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, one of my Facebook friends who's been a. Uh, a film production designer for years. He'll he'll post pictures of like insects or really interesting looking animals, and uh, and he'll state every time nature is still the best creature designer. And he's oh, right. absolutely yeah. I mean, I sometimes I call uh, the cynodonts lizard puppies. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good description. But you know what interests me. And uh, because it's a negative, there's really no real answer to it. But I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that, you know, because fossilization is very much the exception and not the rule, let alone a fossil being found before it's weathered out for good and gone. Think of the animals that will never know existed. That lived in environments that weren't conducive to preserving fossils. Yeah. I mean, think yeah, about some of the things that just have been amazing. And yet we'll, they we'll think there might have been all sorts of mountain pterosaurs that we'll never know about yeah yeah just all sorts of things you know and i mean so that, that's always kind of fascinated me too you know yeah yeah i mean it's it's all fun cryptozoology paleontology um all of it monsters <laughs> well if, if you look at cryptids as prehistoric survivors the paleontology and the cryptozoology crosses over there's a lot of crossover there you know oh yeah very much so yeah and i think probably most if not all of us interested in cryptozoology just like myself have our roots in uh paleontology oh you know, absolutely the fascination in paleontology absolutely do you know jason walton no no i don't the name's not familiar well <clears throat> he's a member of the British Columbia Scientific Cryptozoology Club. Mm -hmm. And sometime during the 90s, he made a model of Cadborosaurus, but it wasn't as close to the photographs as you made. Mm -hmm. It's more of a living, what it would look like alive. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I was just curious if you'd ever seen his model. No, no, I'm going to have to look that up. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I probably have pictures somewhere. I'll have to dig them out. For I would love group. to see it. Yeah, it was totally, people's totally unrelated to what you did. Mm -hmm. He probably just kind of had the same idea you did. But his, is, it looks like humps are coming up out of the water loops. Uh-huh. And the head is standing up erect out of the water. He's made it like it's in the water. Right, uh-huh. Yeah, but it's really cool looking too. You know? That's neat. I'm, I'm also a big fan of Rick Spears too. Oh, you know, I, yeah, some amazing to work. The, I've been to see the Altamaha model. I was there. Oh, that's cool. And I I'm supposed to be photos. going back for a field expedition probably sometime late November or December. All right. For two days. We'll see how it, how it works out. How will the snow be there? I don't think there will be snow. I mean, it's. No? 
it's not that far from where I'm at. I'm down here near Tampa. Oh, yeah. Still running the air conditioning. Georgia, I apologize. I was thinking Champlain again. Oh, no, no, no. I won't be going back to Lake Champlain until next summer. Okay, yeah. Sorry. That's that's in August, though. (laughs) I was there this past August. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you have a good trip when you go this this month. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Also supposed to be going over to check out the uh, St. John's River Monster. Oh, nice. Place called Lake Monroe. It's actually just an enlargement of the St. John's River. Mm-hmm. What they call Pinky. You probably heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah. So I'm going to be looking into that some too. Sweet. Yeah. So is there anything you wanted to talk about while we're doing this that you just happen to think of? Uh, boy, offhand, no, you're covering the subjects pretty well. I'm having a blast. Yeah. Um, yeah, just, uh, I'd like to see, uh, probably more, more cryptozoology movies maybe done a little more serious than the monster on the loose killing people. You know, I'd like to yeah. see something that, Well, I'm know, hoping maybe that this supposed movie adaption of The Lock by Steve Alton will turn out to be decent. Yeah, I hope so, too. You know, we've had a lot of Nessie movies lately, but they've all been kiddie movies. I'm I know. Kiddie movies. I want to I wanna lean and mean scary Nessie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know. I just don't, uh, I don't know why that's, why that's always kind of been associated, geared towards the kid audience, which, uh, you know, that's obviously not a bad thing at all. But, yeah. you know, but I'm with you. I kind of like to see a serious movie. You know, Absolutely, the, yeah. The Something for adults, you know? Yeah, yeah. I just don't think there's enough of that. I mean, the water horse, I liked the design of the monster. The effects were great, but the plot right. was just too childish for me to get into. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I so can I, see how a kid would love it, you know? Yeah, that's true. But, um, again, I'm with you on that. I mean, I would like to see something that, you know, maybe it has a little more of an adult audience in mind. yeah. You know, I the, personally, I like the dark stuff. I mean, that's oh, just, me too. That's always been my nature, even as a kid. You know, it's just. Well, I grew up reading H.P. Lovecraft, you know. Yeah, there you go. Edgar Allan Poe yeah. and all that <laughs> stuff. So it's in me. Yeah. Yeah. Same <laughs> here. <clears throat> Here's something I bet you didn't know. When I was 12 years old, I saw the Minnesota Iceman. Oh, wow. In a mall in Gadsden, Alabama. Uh-huh. What was your take on it? Well, I was just a kid. I was just like, I don't know, you know. <laughs> but it, it was, you know, I mean, looking at the evidence now, I'm convinced there never was a real Minnesota Iceman. Yeah. That it's just a rubber model. Well, and that Bernard Hobelmans and Sanderson fooled themselves into believing that it was real. And bought into Frank Hansen's bullshit. Then when they got too close, then Hansen made up the story. Oh, I had to change it out. And this is a fake copy of the original. Right. I heard that. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, but when I was 12 years old, I was like, wow, this is cool. You know? Oh, of course. But it looked exactly like the pictures that you see, you know, with his arm up over his head and all that. You know, it's, yeah, that's, that's a big problem too, is we, 
you know, that we have to be cautious about is because so often we really want to believe something. Oh, I know. You know, and I mean, I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anybody. I mean, look at what we were yeah. just talking about with the uh, Doc Shields photos. Yep. You know, well, so I, I, mean, I try to employ the same thing at Lake Champlain, you know. Mm-hmm. I've got photographs of, of boat wakes and logs that look like plesiosaurs. And right. You, I show them to people when they get too enthusiastic. I say, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. You know, people do make mistakes. Oh, yeah. And I you mean, know- there's been a whole bunch of videos lately coming from Okanagan Lake, and every damn one of them is a boat wake. Yeah. And they yeah. all look exactly you know- the same with the same series of like three or four humps. With the light flashed on their boat waves. Right, yeah. And, and you the, know that's the newspapers that carry these stories uh, don't care. And you they're know just uh, looking for copies. So the hardest there ones it is, you know to track have gotta be water cryptids anyway. Yeah. You know, it's the fact is somebody's gotta go under the water and get some photos of something swimming yep. underwater. That's, that's gonna be the true. only thing that wows anybody at this point now. Yeah. But then again, you got things like the Manzi photo. Yeah. And even and that, you know, there, there are people are saying, well, I believe Sandra Mancy was a nice lady. She wasn't lying. But that was clearly a tree log. You know, I mean, yeah, how do you yeah, do with you know, it's possible, but it looks like an animal to me. To me, too. You know, I and mean, I, the Bodette video, I'm sure you've seen that. What they show of it. Yeah. Yeah. And the Olsen video, which like some, some big turtle or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, too. So, you know, there is obviously evidence that is not waves sure well i i still get like animals you know i still get wowed by the dinsdale film well yeah me too i mean you know but but a lot of people aren't being critical about separating the the wheat from the chaff you know exactly and maybe it took me 25 years to be able to look at a piece of video and say oh that's a boat wake that's a log you know i'm i'm talking from experience yeah exactly so, you know, there's a learning curve involved. And I'm sure that your perspective now on cryptozoology is changed a lot from what it was when you were 10, 15 years old. You know? Oh, absolutely. Well, I can tell well, I you, do. I can tell you the story from because my I, all my life I figured I was going to be writing novels with cryptids. But back when I was in high school, it was going to be, you know, like armies of Bigfoot coming down from the mountains in Washington and wiping out a whole town and stuff like that. And then it was only a few years later when I started really looking to what people were finding. I'm like, wow, that's not the case at all. And I actually found what's really going on is far more interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I like it a lot more. I, I, to tell you the truth, I really can't bring myself to uh, the werewolf book I'm working on. That's it's just pure horror. So yeah, there's plenty of slaughter in that one. So it's not dog man. It's no. Straight not, story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got you. And, uh, in fact, I, I never really even thought of myself writing a werewolf story, except, a a good friend of mine wrote one years ago that, uh, I really enjoyed. And when I read it, I said, you know something, I want to write a werewolf story, not to copy his in any way, shape or form. And I didn't, but it really inspired me to think, Hmm, I'd like to do something different with it too. And so that's kind of what brought me to it. So I, th- I think I bring something new to the table with it. Uh, we'll see. I have some beta readers, friends reading it right now for me. And and so far, the results have been pretty good, you know, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, best of luck with it. And, Thank uh, you. I appreciate that. Any uh, 
final thoughts you want to bring in? Uh, not really. Um, I would have to, I would have to say, I, I don't know that we have time to touch on it now. Maybe another time. Uh, I'm a big fan of the UFO field, you know, and, uh, sure, let's, let's go with it. All right. Yeah. You know, uh, just, uh, one day that's something I want to do too, is I do want to write a UFO novel, but I'd, I'd like to write it kind of the way Tom Clancy might've written it, you know, uh, going beyond, uh, just alien abductions and things like that that would probably that would be very much a part of the story but to to really get into the mechanisms of it you know to that's not talked about a lot that and again talking from a fiction standpoint uh to really wow people with it to bring something new to the table with that subject i don't know i would love for it to be a kodiak book but there's it's so far afield i don't know if i can work him into the story in a realistic way so it might be a separate book Mm. maybe you could bring in some kind of cryptozoology element to work him into the story. You know, like people think they saw a cryptid and it's not, it's an alien. Well, actually one of the, the next book I'm writing for him after I finish the werewolf uh, <laughs> does touch on the reptoids. Ah, and I'm not talking about the ones that are supposed to be running the government or anything like that, but, but like a, a splinter group of the uh, alien reptoids, which I figure I'm going to use one of two ways. It's either going to be just a story of him encountering them, kind of being woken up to the UFO possibilities because it's not something he ever got into uh, or using it as an entree into the UFO book. Yeah. And that comes around. So I haven't decided yet, but he's, he's definitely going to be going up against the reptoids in the next one. Have you read Patrick Wiig's book, The Complete Guide to Extraterrestrials? Uh, you know something? I think I have it here. I've got like that 60 books probably, on UFO phenomena. That is probably the best book on aliens I've ever read. Nice. That's a very good book. I highly recommend it. If, if you don't mind my asking, what is your uh, take on the UFO thing? What is, is that something you've ever Oh, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's something going on. I have always tended to agree with most people that it's extraterrestrial visitors mm-hmm. visiting us on earth and checking us out. Yeah. Beyond that. I mean, you know, I try not to be a generalist. Yeah. I decided that, that the lake monster thing, the long neck lake monster is my primary quarry. Mm-hmm. I've had tunnel vision on that. Sure. But I do have a peripheral interest in all sorts of things and other cryptids and ufology, even parapsychology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I just don't have enough time to concentrate on it like I do the leg monster thing. I get that. But I too. have an open mind, you know? Yeah. But no, I get that because you're out doing you're doing authentic research. See, it's easy for me being an armchair researcher. It's like a it's like also I could never be a paleontologist because I'm having too much fun working on all the different things that these guys write about. Whereas a paleontologist might be focused on a single specimen his entire career. Well, you know, the way a lot of paleontology research goes is you go out to a place that's usually lots of rocks and you start looking around looking for weird looking rocks. Yeah which might be a fish head or a backbone or something, you know. Sure. You're looking yeah. for loose 
rocks that are laying around that might be part of a fossil. And that's usually how you, you start finding things. Mm -hmm. And then you dig under that, you might find the rest of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a crap That's how it works. Yeah. But Good. initially, you're going out and you're just looking at stuff, you know? Sure. Well, you've read yeah. the backstory of Sue, right? The T-Rex? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the same thing. She just happened to see a piece of bone sticking out of the rock above her. Yeah. And recognize that it was a T-Rex. Yeah. Incredible. So, yeah, you know, and sometimes, you know, depending on how difficult it is to access the fossil. Yeah. You might be spending months just digging it out of the ground. Well, from what I've heard, there are, there are some places that uh, have a backlog of completely unopened uh, fossil specimens that were dug up years ago. They don't have yeah. the finances, the manpower. Yeah. To open them up, there might be entirely new species in there. Did you see the TV special about Predator X? Yes. They had to break it into pieces. Yeah. And fly <laughs> so it out with the helicopters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What a pain <laughs> in the butt, you know? Think about that. You know? Yeah. But how awesome is that, too? You know? Well, like, yeah, absolutely. And you know, you know about the Utah Raptor block, right? They well, found I, out. They're still working they, on that. They filmed. One and we're trying to transport it and it dropped. Oh, the Predator X? Is that it? Uh, oh, with the uh, Utah Raptor block? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I do know it was a huge block and they, I think they had to fly that out too. I could be wrong, but I, yeah. I thought I recalled them having to fly that out. And uh, that's like God, they describe it as having like a whole family of Utah Raptors inside of it. And they've been working on it for a couple of years now. So they're still chiseling away at it, trying to get it out of the rock. Right, yeah. Wow. Well, you know these giant, you know these giant Shastasaur ichthyosaurs? Sure. Mm -hmm. It's really big ones. Well, there's a whole bunch of them in uh, Nevada. And they're still in the slab on the, they've got a tent built over the fossil mm -hmm. site. And you walk in and you still see it in its original slab. Wow. <laughs> Because they're so big, you know? Right, yeah. It's just not practical to, to, to dig them out of there and put them in a museum because they're too big. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Be like trying to dig a blue whale out of the side of a mountain, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing, too, because sometimes they'll decide, no, we, we just don't need another specimen of something, and they leave it. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, you know, I, I don't know if I ever told you or not, but... I used to do volunteer work in vertebrate paleontology. Oh, nice. At the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences. Mm -hmm. When I lived there, this was back in the early 90s. So I do have some experience. That's so cool. Still, so we were probably at our respective museums at about the same time. Ah, this would have been 1990 to 1992. Mine was 1990 to 1991. Well, there you go. Yeah, so we're about the same age, so that makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, and then I moved to Vermont in April of 94. Yeah, so. Nice. Yeah, I've seen you talk a lot about Vermont. I guess that's that's pretty much home for you emotionally? Well, I lived there for 18 years. Nice. I'm originally from Alabama, believe it or not. Okay. Yeah, so... Before was it Lake I Champ Vermont? I lived in Philadelphia. So, what was it, Lake Champlain that that brought you to uh, to there first? Yes, yes, absolutely. 
The only reason I'm living in Florida is I married a woman that hates the cold. <laughs> so she's down here in Florida, and we met each other. And I had no choice but to move down here and go back to Lake Champlain once a year. Yeah, so, that's nice. So best of both worlds. Yeah. I can I can actually kind of sympathize with her not liking the cold. I'm that way too. <laughs> well, the, winters, the winters in Vermont are just horrible. Are they? Yeah, and the lakes just froze over most of the time. Anyway, I couldn't really do much anyway. Yeah. So, might as well be down here and hunt for Florida monsters in the winter. Florida's apparently got them too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all up and down the Panhandle and in the St. Johns River and on the. Uh, East Coast. Yeah, there's all sorts of monster war around here. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem is, you've got large animals that live in Florida that are very easily mistaken for monsters. Sure. Large sure. alligators, manatees. Uh, I imagine, especially from, from people that are uninitiated with those. Yeah. You have your first that come down here and see a manatee and, right. oh, let's have a Loch Ness monster. <laughs> That happens a lot. More than I imagine it does because man manatees are actually pretty huge. Yeah, yeah. And they have the round Nessie home. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so fun. That complicates matters here. Sure. And it also makes me very ca more cautious of getting in the water here than I would be in Vermont. Really? Because there are no alligators in Vermont. To my oh, home. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good reason. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So what are your thoughts on parapsychology? Boy, that's, you know, I haven't done a lot of research into that. Um, you know, again, I read about the remote viewing the CIA was into and, and the Russians. And I don't know how much stock I put into that. I don't really know about... Uh, you know, the telekinesis thing and, and, uh, you know, and that I, I do believe ghosts are real. Um, I think a lot of those shows are just sens sensationalistic, you know, where oh, yeah, like, absolutely. if you're here or say something, it's like, oh, come on. It's the <laughs> parapsychology equivalent of bad cryptozoology. Right. Exactly. Same principles. Oh, it's like a, a line from the exorcist when, uh, Jason Miller is talking to the mother after he just talked with the little girl. And uh, he says to her, she says she's the devil himself. That's the equivalent of somebody, somebody claiming they were Napoleon in a past life. Yep. So um, speaking of remote viewing, mm -hmm. did you know that there was a remote viewing experiment allegedly done on Loch Ness? Yes. Yeah. I did hear about that. When anytime anybody asked me, Oh, is there any evidence for a paranormal explanation for Nessie? I said, here you go. Here's the best evidence out there. Which is not very good, but nevertheless, it's, it exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. the guy that claimed to be part of the CIA's experiment was a guy named Major Ed Dames. Mm-hmm. And he's been on Coast to Coast radio several times and the story he tells is that he was asked during the Clinton administration to investigate Loch Ness 
and that he kept seeing something that looked like a plesiosaur that would blink in and out of his vision. And he came to the opinion that it was the ghost of a plesiosaur. Okay. So you can take that for what it is. Right, yeah. That's the claim the guy's making. And I was able to find a declassified CIA document that talks about it. No so kidding. He's obviously telling the truth. Mm-hmm. But, you know, all you got is his verbal testimony in that report. You know. Yeah, make, make, it, it, make of it what you will, yeah. Yeah, but that's that's better than Ted Holliday, you know? Oh. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's definitely better than have Ted Have you ever Holliday. read The Goblin Universe? Yes, I have. I'm beginning to wonder if Ted Holliday wasn't crazy. Yeah, I think a case could be made. <laughs> it's like, has this guy got mental problems? Yeah, again. And, the, the, I, and I respect his original Tully Monster theory. Mm-hmm. You know, that is within the realm of possibility. Sure. But really there toward the end, he went off the rails. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's odd. You know, I mean, it's a, another... Another, uh, I, I'm really not into the interdimensional Bigfoot theory either. You know, it's oh, me neither. I mean, let's find it as a find out a, if it's a flesh and blood animal to begin with. And, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I, I much prefer the 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 dichotomy of either it's stories or it's a real animal we haven't found yet. This exactly supernatural mumbo jumbo in the middle doesn't appeal to me. No, especially at this stage of things, we can't yeah. even we can't even say what it is. Like I said, yeah, I, I, mean, I like the Gigantopithecus theory, but it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean it's it, that's at all what it is. We've got enough of a problem making it fit into what we know about biology, much exactly. less bringing an added problem of a physics problem to add on top of that. <laughs> exactly. Well, well it, was, it was interesting. My brother and I went to a uh, conference in 2003 up in uh, up at Northern California at the near the Oregon border at Willow Creek. And uh, I stepped out of the auditorium where the presentations were going on, and I looked up at the the mountains right literally off the road of where we were standing, going up hundreds and hundreds of feet, carpeted with uh, pine trees. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, you know, there could be a million of them up there right now watching us, and we'd never know it. Oh, you know, I've been across parts of Canada. You could drive four or five hours and there's nothing but a road and woods on either side of you. Yeah. You could have had a whole, whole herd of dinosaurs up in Canada. Yeah. And nobody would know it. I've been there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Ontario and Quebec, just nothing but a road. Yeah. When we yeah. were when we were up at the Olympic Peninsula, we were at a uh, hotel up there that's in the peninsula itself. And you walk 20 feet from the hotel and you'd think you were in the deep woods. If you were filming a movie there, you wouldn't have to leave the hotel grounds. Yeah. Yeah, just phenomenal. Yeah. So, I don't know, but I've kind of run out of ideas. <laughs> well, I think we've run, gone to ground, Paul. I think, I, think we've, I think we've pretty much well hit all the, the highlights. <laughs> Well, I got to tell you, this has been a blast. It's been a pleasure getting oh, to yeah, talk man. to you finally. Thank you. I mean, obviously, 
we have a lot in common. We grew up in the same yeah. cultural environment, so. Yep, yep. Yep, yep I'm agreed. And I always enjoy your, your research, too, that you post. I think it's amazing. Well, thank you. And also, I would like to say, for the record, I did not personally know William Dranginis, but I, I really am sorry for your loss. I, everything I ever heard about him is he was a wonderful man, and a lot oh, of people wow. loved I mean, he, him. His respect in the Bigfoot field totally eclipses what me and him were doing with Champ. Yeah. In the I, Bigfoot field, he's an icon. So. I know. I know. Like I said, he I never had a great friend of mine, and I'm still trying to get the Champ research back to the level that it was. Mm-hmm. Before his untimely passing, yeah, you know. So, and of course, I wish you the best of luck with that. But I was, I was sorry Thank to hear you. of his passing, my friend. Yeah, it was a, a major loss, and not only research-wise, but personally as well. Oh yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Right, friend. He's missed by a lot of people. I yep. saw that for sure. Yeah. Yep. Many close friends of my own who knew him definitely expressed sorrow over that. Yep. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll pee on the fire and call in the dog. <laughs> Scott, thank you so much. This is the blessing. Of course, I will. Yep. We'll talk on Facebook. Yep. I'll go ahead. Promote your books. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. They're on Amazon. Yeah. Matter of fact, you could just, if you want, just post my author page on Amazon. That has all of them on there. It'll make it easier for you, I think. And you've got, you say you have a Facebook page besides your personal page for your products? Yeah, yeah, when I when I update it. <laughs> All right. Well, well, my friend, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Have a good night. You too. And I'll talk to you on Facebook. Yep. All right. Take care. You too. All right. Thanks again. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis.